Best of Times, live from 710 Keel Studios in Shreveport, Louisiana, celebrating age and maturity, helping you make the best years of your life the best they can be. The Best of Times, your host, Gary Kaligas. Good morning, radio listeners. I'm Gary Kaligas, the publisher of The Best of Times, the only magazine and radio show for mature adults in Northwest Louisiana. I do thank you for tuning in to our show today and also th- thanking those who might be listening via the Internet at www.710keel.com. Also thanking those who might be listening via the Keel application on their Apple or Android devices. We do thank AARP Louisiana and a Bears, Tiny Country of Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler Ram, and Jeep dealer for being the exclusive sponsors of this radio show to provide you with beneficial information each and every Saturday morning. In just a few minutes, we're going to learn some interesting historical information about the legends and myths regarding the Texas Revolution in the early 1830s. So stay to the show for some very interesting information for you and your loved ones. It is Saturday, March the 4th, and we are broadcasting our show from the studios of News Radio 710 Keel, a town square media station here in wonderful Shreveport, Louisiana. However, today's show has been pre-recorded, so we will be unable to accept calling questions and comments from our loyal radio listeners. Be sure to pick up the March issue of the Best of Times at one of our 270 distribution locations. We do thank you for the many compliments about our magazine. We do appreciate hearing from you. Remember, if you're unable to find a copy, you can always visit our very popular website at www.thebestoftimesnews.com. You can view both current and past issues of our magazine. In addition, you can listen to previously broadcast radio shows here on the Best of Times Radio Hour. In addition, you can view and download the 2023 Silver Pages Senior Resource Directory. Speaking of our Senior Resource Directory, be sure to pick up the newly updated and revised 2023 Silver Pages Senior Resource Directory, which is being distributed at our 270 distribution locations. Again, we'll have almost 20,000 copies, and there are start to be placed at our 270 distribution locations, so be patient. You might have to come back to uh, receive a copy by the, by the time our distribution people deliver those to the distribution locations today being being March the 4th. It has over 4,000 listings of businesses, organizations, uh, governmental agencies, and departments to provide you with beneficial information on how to select products and services to also meet you and your loved one's needs and concerns. If you're unable to find a copy, remember you can always visit our website at www.thebestoftimesnews.com to view or download it. Our friends at Ernest Arlene's offers the Best of Times special dinner each and every Thursday from 4.30 p.m. until closing with fabulous meals offered at a highly discounted price of only $25. It is highly recommended due to the popularity of this Thursday night special to make advance reservations by calling 318-226-1325. Again, that's 318 318- We'll be right back with more information, but now a word from our sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour here on News Radio 710 Keel, probably presented by AARP Louisiana and Ebers, Tenant Country of Shreveport, your Dodge Chrysler Ram and Jeep dealer. (laughs) 
Gary Kaligas will be right back with more Best of Times Radio Hour after this on 1017 FM and 710 Gary's back with more Best of Times Radio Hour on 1017 FM and 710 Key. Welcome back to our show, the Best of Times Radio Hour, probably presented by AARP Louisiana and Ebers, Tenant Country of Shreveport, your Dodge Chrysler Ram and Jeep dealer. Joining me on my radio show today is a very special guest. It's Mr. T- Dr. Tom Presley, who is a remarkable local area physician, but also a very active and well-known historian and researcher. I've asked him to come on our show today to discuss some of his findings on a recent presentation that he gave on the legends and myths of the Texas Revolution in the 1830s. So thank you, Dr. Presley, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me here today, Gary. So... Um, again, I appreciate you coming. You have a busy, very busy schedule, as most physicians in our area are quite busy, right? Absolutely, particularly during this change of weather. It seems to bring out joint pain with oh, people. Oh, it does. It does. It does. So, again, listeners, to, to tell you, I heard Dr. Presley make this presentation. I found it fascinating. I knew a little bit about the Texas Revolution and being a lot of us are have roots back and forth from Texas, Louisiana. My, myself, all, all of my relatives and my parents, we lived in Texas for many, many years until we moved to Shreveport. So, again, I thought this was a very conveyance. And also, he's going to explain to you how some of this, uh, of this particular Texas revolution influenced some of the aspects in the Shreveport and Bossier City area as well. So what inspired you to do this re- research? Have you done it before? Well, Gary, I've kind of grown up with research on the Alamo. <laughs> I grew up in San Antonio. True. Great um, city. I love it. My grandfather designed a couple of buildings right next to Alamo, which is fun. Uh, the Salado Creek battle was close to me, as well as the grass fight was close to where my cousins have some property. And I went to Alma Heights High School. Wow, I didn't know that rest of the story. This is great. I love it when I ask when I ask guests about what 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 got their interest in doing that. So so you have a personal interest, but also you wanted to share that information with us in in the in the Arkla, Texas area, right? Absolutely, Gary. Um, my I have family that's been in Texas since the 1820s. My wife does too, and so it's been kind of fun to explore that and also to explore some of the myths and, and legends as far as the Alamo. Um, a lot of these weren't available when I was a child, so the accounts that were in Spanish didn't really come out to the 1990s. Oh. So it's interesting to see that perspective also. So they they were kept but never translated, right? They weren't translated back there in the 70s. And, of course, you and I both grew up with Fess Parker doing Davy Crockett right. and John Wayne at the Alamo and and all the kind of battles we had with Charlton Heston and things that, through, through the years of, of, uh, of growing up. So let's let's start off and, and, and talk about some of the, the aspects. Uh, I mean, I think is a good starting point, and you need to, to emphasize to our listeners, one thing that I learned, and, you know, we know about it when we live in the Shreveport and Bossier City area, that, that many of our streets are named after some of the heroes of the Texas Revolution. Why do you think that occurred? Well, I don't know, but it sure makes Trace and I feel comfortable when we moved to Shreveport <laughs> from Texas. Uh, you have Crockett Street and, of course, old Ben Milam with the siege of Behar being the only casualty. Right. Um, and it's it's fun to see Fannin that's there, and, and so we feel very at home being in Shreveport and, and driving around town. Yeah, a lot of a lot of 
visitors ask us that question. You know, you're in Louisiana. Why all these these Texas? And they hear about some of them, but definitely, you know, our main streets, Texas Avenue. So that you know, that's the absolutely. Other. Of course, Freeport was founded in 1836, six. which is when the Alamo and uh, was fought, as well as the Battle of San Jacinto. Well, Tom, in, in your presentation, you mentioned uh, in so many words or less that during this revolution, a lot of the Texans went over to Louisiana, right? That was part of the great uh, runaway scrape, and right. my wife's family did that. So her relatives was one of the signers of the Texas Declaration of Independence, and the rest of the family skedaddled uh, over to Opelousas, where they had been before they moved into Texas, um, to try and escape the Mexican army that had devastated the forces at the Alamo. Wow. So I don't think a lot of people know that. That's how a lot of the people came over, and I think – Personally, some of them must have been this area, and that's why when the, the city was founded and the streets started being named, right? Well, that to me, it's be. interesting, too, because I have a lot of friends that have cousins that are in San Antonio, for example. So this was kind of one of the last stop-off places when you went into Texas was around the Shreveport and Greenwood area. And that, you know, that that that's quite a bit. So let, let's talk about some of those heroes. Uh, can we talk a little bit about, about, about Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie to our, for our listeners out there? Absolutely. Um, I think that Davy Crockett was really an amazing man. They're not quite sure where he was born. So that's that's uh, amazing. Somewhere uh, close to uh, um, to Kentucky and Tennessee land. And um, he just was a uh, an amazing man who wrote about his exploits. One year he claimed he shot 156 bears and was in the Creek and Indian War and had a lot of sympathy for the Indians, which was interesting. He also wanted free land to be available uh, which got him into um, got him into trouble with Andrew Jackson. So Davy Crockett had been a congressman um, for a few years, for a couple of terms, right. and Andrew Jackson went after him because he was after some of his policies, such as the Trail of, of Tears. So he wanted the representative of that part of Kentucky to be on his on his side and and uh, be active in s- supporting the Trail of Tears. But Davy Crockett wouldn't have anything to do with that. Uh, he had read a, uh, written a few of his his books and pamphlets. Uh, about uh, who he was as far as being a, um, a explorer and a hunter and everything. And um, he, when he was beat, he said, well, uh, that he was going to go to Texas and they might go to hell. <laughs> Isn't that amazing but, but, but how that could occur? You know, he was, he was pretty successful being a congressman and also an entrepreneur in that area, right? Unfortunately for him, he was a great politician, and he's a great legend, and his stories were fascinating, but he wasn't a very good farmer, and that's oh. what he kind of stuck, was stuck doing. And unfortunately, his wife died very young, so he was stuck on the frontier with kids, and so he married a woman pretty much out of convenience for the two of them just to survive hmm. uh, at that point. Wow. What, what a story and there. What he, a when, he story. Went to, when he went to Texas, he told his family to not worry because he was with friends. Oh. It's a neat story with that. Isn't that great? Jim Bowie was just, um, on the other hand, I don't know about him, Gary. Um, he really was an opportunist, uh, tried to get land deals, uh, had some illegal papers that were written up, both in Arkansas and Louisiana, about getting land deals with that. Um, he married the Mexican governor's uh, daughter. Mm. Uh, Vera Mende, and then was able to get some money from her father. Um, so he he won the altruistic type of person that Davy Crockett was. Uh, he certainly was very cont- courageous with the uh, uh, sandbar fight that he had around Natchez, with and with of course with his large uh, knife, which was uh, known as the Bowie knife. 
Hmm. The buoy night is quite quite uh, popular. It still is popular today, isn't it? Uh, absolutely, it's quite a piece um, of Crocodile Dundee and everything. That's right. That's that's right. And then William Barrett Travis had some marital problems. He was a young man. Uh, he and his and his wife got married at a very young age, like nineteen or twenty, and he just really couldn't afford to keep up with her. Um, and he was an attorney but was not paid very much as a very young man. People wouldn't use his services. So he came over to Texas and did very well with his legal um, practice, uh, was able to have some large cases that were there, basically left his wife and had a problem about what to do with their son. And so after being successful, uh, he and his wife came up with an arrangement, and so he was able to take his son back with him to Texas uh, with that. Uh, Travis was interesting because he really got involved with politics um, and the military early on, and the Mexican government put a tariff on Texas, I guess a little lot like uh, what happened in the United States with uh, trying to, to bring in revenue to take care of some of the frontier possessions. And the Texans didn't like it at all. So there was a, a port at Velasco and one at Anahuac. And so uh, in 1835, it was interesting because Travis attacked the fortress uh, where the Mexican soldiers were stationed. And he had just a few men, but the Mexican forces, who were much larger, didn't realize that. And he told them if they don't immediately uh, surrender with no terms, that he would put them to the sword. And, of course, that's what happened to him down the road. And, and, and it gave a scare tactic, too, right? That was Absolutely. A, that, and, and it worked, did it? Did it work? It certainly worked on that. It worked on that. So well, another, I think, misnomer of some of the people in the area, which I learned from your presentation and, and reading a little bit, it, it this conflict and the, the start of the revolution had many conflicts and battles before the, the infamous Battle of the Alamo, right? Absolutely. You know, a lot of people think it's just Anglos that came into Texas, and that's what the problem was. But you really had Texians, which they called the people that were of Anglo ancestry uh, in, the, in the area of Tejas at mm-hmm. that point. And then the Hispanics who had been there for two or three hundred years were known as Tejanos. And the Tejanos were also not really happy what had happened to the Mexican government. Um, Santa Andrew started off as a federalist, as a liberal federalist, and then he changed sides and became an autocratic centralist. So he basically became a dictator, and they weren't happy with that. One of the statements that I've, I've found, which I thought was, was kind of fun, is they said that the Pope lived in Rome, the King of, of Spain lived in Madrid, mm-hmm. the Viceroy of uh, Mexico lived in Mexico City, and they really didn't want any of them to be in control of them. They wanted to have their own independence and to be on the frontier. And so several of the very prominent families, the De La Garza's, the Veramendes, the Neveros, for example, and the Ruizas, um, liked the way things were where they could kind of control their own destiny. Wow. What, what a fab- fabulous information about that as well. So what I thought was uh, one of the aspects – Let's start in to talk about Santa Ana. Let's talk about him. You say in in, in one of your presentations, uh, he's depicted as evil and and merciless foe. And you commented that once the proud leader of the Mexican army has muffled in the sea of mud. Why did you say that? Well, for a couple of reasons. Um, For one, he really was a pretty amazing man. He was the president of of Mexico 11 times. 11 times. And he was born in a very middle-class family, a Creole family, in Veracruz in 1794. He entered military school at age 16 and then joined the Royal Army of Spain as a teenager. 
He initially fought for Mexican independence. He served under the tutelage of Joaquin de Arandadondo, uh, where he witnessed the general's fierce counterinsurgency policy of mass executions. In 1821, Santa Ana changed sides, joining Augustin de Turbide's rebel forces and was promoted to Brigadier General. Why did, he, why did he change sides, I wonder? Well, I think because he's an opportunist, Gary. He's always looking out what's best for Santa Ana, which is why he kept on coming up like a bad penny um, <laughs> through, for the, through the next 30 years. So he broke with a turbide um, shortly after that and came out with the 1822 Plan of Casamata. He then served as the governor of Yucatan and rebelled against the government in 1833 and became the president of Mexico as a liberal and a federalist. The next year, he decided Mexico was not ready for democracy, and he emerged oh. as an autocratic centralist. So they weren't ready for democracy. He didn't, he didn't the feel pay. so anyway. He kind of liked that power that he, that he kept on uh, obtaining through the years with that. And, you know, Texas or Tejas was not the only place in rebellion. He also oh. had to fight against forces in Yucatan um, and Oaxaca and Zacateas. In fact, that used a lot of his resources that he had. So when he finally did it, uh, enter Texas, he didn't bring a medical corps. I read that amazingly. To save money, he just let the wounded die and whoever, right? Didn't and have a medical corps. You think corps. about it back then, they used to load cannons with nails and horseshoes and all sorts of metal fragments. So if you just were hit like in the forearm because of not having antibiotics or any care at that point, that person would have a very good chance of dying. Amazing. Yeah, I, I think I, you said that, but I also read about the decided to cut expenses, and that was one of the issues of cutting expenses. Don't bring the medical corps, right? That's what they did, Gary. He he uh, just cut that. And he put uh, those off. physicians on the front line and nurses on the front line, right? Those who would join him. And, of course, he was a master at organizing an army, not that they'd be of the same quality. So he had some activos and permanentes, so those were his, his best uh, soldiers. But when he raised a force of 6,000 troops, he raided prisons and got people off the streets. So you've got people that, that really – were not armed uh, well and uh, were not very well trained to, to go into combat. Well, I thought that was an interesting uh, comparison of what the Russians are doing and getting some of their conscripts out of prisons. I never heard of that before until until I think I read it in your presentation that he did that. Wow, Santa Ana back in 1830s or did that as well. Absolutely, Gary. Um I've, it made it look good when you had an army coming by on that size, but uh, when they came to fighting, the soldiers that were poorly trained did not do well, obviously. No, and that's what we're finding out today in this today world, right? In, in Absolutely. World. Um, so, the the other aspect, that, that, let's talk about some of these some of the myths mis- initially. Um, uh, everybody was was uh, has, has said. What was the significance of the the the, the fort of the Alamo? What was the significance? Was there significance? Well, Gary, I think there's a couple of reasons why they stayed there. And Sam Houston initially wanted to abandon and destroy it, That's and he right. sent Bowie over after already receiving reconnaissance from Travis. Um, the reason why it's important is because there's two main roads to where the Anglo settlements were. There was one that went through San Antonio, and the other one went through Goliad. And at the Alamo, after the surrender of Santa Ana's brother-in-law, uh, Martin um, Koss, he they had 21 cannons. So they picked up 21 artillery pieces, including an 18-pounder. Wow. 
and they did not have the way to be able to get these out, to get the the pieces to take with any sort of army they would form. So I think that that was one reason why they wanted to take a a chance on that. And, of course, they were hopeful, certainly Bowie was and Travis, that they would receive more reinforcements. And they would receive little bands like Crockett came with 12 uh, soldiers, uh, Bowie came in with 30, uh, the men from Gonzales came in with 32. And the original commander of the Alamo, whose name was James Neal, who's, I'd like to talk to you about further about him next yeah. segment, because he's a pretty amazing guy. Um, he raised a force of 375 soldiers at Gonzales. Whoa. That's, that's quite a few back in those areas. It didn't join the Alamo, but it really was the basis for Sam Houston's army of the future. Sure. It, it needed at San Jacinto. And had the success. Well, let's hold that thought. We'll be right back with more information. But now a word from our sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour here on News Radio 710 Keel, proudly presented by AARP Louisiana and Abers, sending country of Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler Ram, and Jeep dealer. Gary Kaligas will be right back with more Best of Times Radio Hour after this on 1017 FM and 710 Keel. Gary's back with more Best of Times Radio Hour on 1017 FM and 710 Kiel. Welcome back to our show, the Best of Times Radio Hour, proudly presented by AARP Louisiana Neighbors, tenant country of Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler Ram, and Jeep dealer. Joining me on my show today is a special guest, is Dr. Tom Presley, who is a remarkable local area physician, but also a person quite interested in history and uh, definitely a researcher. So thank you, Dr. Presley, for joining us today here on the Best of Times Radio Hour. Thank you so much for having me, Gary. So we're talking a little bit about the myths and legends of the Texas Revolution in the 1830s. I thought an interesting uh, fact that uh, I don't think a lot of people are aware of, that the Battle of Alamo took place on March the 6th, 1836. However, independence was declared two days before the battle. Is that true? Well, the siege uh, started on February the 23rd and went to March the 6th when yeah. the force was put to the sword and totally annihilated. The Declaration of Independence was signed on Washington on the Brazos on March the 6th. And it's kind of interesting as far as the people that signed this. First of all, there were three Tejanos that signed that. Um, And so these were members of families that had been in Texas for a couple of hundred years. The impresarios were a group of of people that were allowed in by the Mexican government to try to colonize Texas and to be able to protect Mexico from Indian attacks because this was the Comancheria that you had at this point, as well as Indians from the Kiowa tribes and the Apaches and and different groups like this. And so the Mexican government, with the Constitution of 1824, allowed people such as Stephen F. Austin to bring settlers in. Uh, Austin had almost 300 families. And they settled in um, an area around LaGrange, Texas, um, and DeWitt County and Colorado County. And they um, were probably the most successful of the impresarios of the colonies that were there. But there were about 12 others. In 1830, on August the, uh, April the 6th, the Mexican government was worried about all the influx of, of Anglos that had come into Texas. And had come in illegally. So the way they were supposed to come in is to sign up through an impresario. And at that point, the government would give you 4,000 acres of, of uh, land if you're a <laughs> rancher or 200 if you're a farmer, which is certainly very generous. And, boy, that's that's wonderful yes. land around LaGrange. But they had a lot of people that just snuck in at that point after 1830. 
and about 15 of the signers of the, of the Declaration of Independence uh, had come in from 18 after 1830, so they came in illegally. So that's interesting. That that is that is. So uh, let's go a little bit m- more about um, about the Alamo. Was the Alamo always there before the battle? How long was it there? The the the, the fort. The Alamo had been there since the 18th century. It was one of six Whoa. missions that was set up in okay, San Antonio uh, to Christianize the Indians. And it was the oldest one that was there. And and so it, when was it converted into a, uh, a, a fort? Well, the Alamo was built in 1718 and was turned into a fort in, 18, in, in 1835 by uh, General Coase. Oh. Uh, he retreated back during the siege of Behar, which lasted from November the 1st up till December the 11th, and they kept on falling back. He had a force of about 2,000 soldiers, but even with that, he wasn't able to hold San Antonio or the fortress itself. So he was given very good terms after the Texans followed old Ben Milam into um, into San Antonio. And um, they were allowed to take one arm and uh, one firearm and mm-hmm. to be able to march back in Mexico. And, but they were supposed to promise that they would never come back and, and uh, into the, the area of, of, of Texas. And promises were broken. Promises were broken, absolutely. Yeah, uh, it's his brother-in-law, Gary. Oh, yeah, so, oh, yeah. So, so tell, so tell those those that we were talking about. Neil was Neil. Yes, uh, Colonel James Clinton Neil, Neil. I think is one of the heroes that people don't hear very much about, and he really was the artillery expert. So he showed off his uh, his artillery at the Battle of Gonzales uh, with the come and take it. So he was the guy that fired the cannon. Mission Concepcion, where he was very successful in showing the long firepower the Americans were able to have between having their Pennsylvania uh, long rifles versus the old best rifles the Mexican troops had, and also commanding a battery that prevented um, the Texan camp from being taken over during the siege of Bejar. He was one of the few that was left, so they had between six and 800 troops, most of which went home uh, at, at the time of Christmas, including my um, wife had two uh, relatives that Whoa. were at that part and then left, so they weren't at the Battle of Alamo. But Neil stayed there with 78 soldiers, and him and, and an engineer, Jameson Green, uh, set up 18 of the artillery pieces around the old mission. So he had a pretty formal position with that. But unfortunately, he was only able to, you know, maybe triple the number of, of soldiers that he had. So not nearly enough troops to be able to successfully defend it against a force of two or three thousand. Thousands, thousands versus hundreds in, in the Alamo. That's that the scenario there. I thought it, it was another interesting uh, fact. I think you mentioned it in yours that that defenders experience internal tension. Was that true within the Alamo? There was some tension involved. Some people got, uh, of course, uh, Travis and Neil and all the others. There was a little bit of, a little, a bit of non-compliant. You certainly had a bunch of different volunteers that came in without military background, and that was a problem. Neil left um, because he had his family was sick, so we had to go tend to those. So he left it under the under the control of Bowie and Travis, which was a problem. Yeah. Uh, Bowie was a, a much older man, and he had 
done a lot of, of successful business things and and was a, a frontiersman. And Travis was a young man in his 20s, and so they didn't do very well at all uh, with this. But that also is true for the government of Texas as well as the Army. So Stephen F. Austin was the original commander of the Texas Army in 1835 and was eventually replaced by Sam Houston. And then you had the government of Texas. They had a, a, a group uh, that was out um, that was called the council, and they had a lot of differences of opinion with this. And you'd have different intermittent governors that would be there. There was one whose name was Henry Smith, and he basically tried to fire the um, the group of, of uh, people that was that were involved with control of Texas. And so he tried to fire them, and they fired him. So you just had a lot of problems as far as the government as well as the military with leadership at that point. So one of the myths that we you hear and people talk about is Sam Houston ordered the Alamo to be abandoned. Is that true or false? That's true. It is true. And he sent in Travis to take a look at it, and he thought it was too good to leave when he got with all the artillery pieces with oh. uh, Jameson Green and with Neil. And then also he sent Bowie, and Bowie also thought it was a good place to be if you could get proper troops. So I don't think any of these people thought they were walking into a death sentence with perhaps the exception of Davy Crockett. Hmm. So he was the only one that was more a little pessimistic about the scenario. Well, I think at that point when he came in in, in early February, he realized that Santa Ana had crossed the Presidio, uh, which is right above Del Rio, of the Rio Grande, and was headed toward Texas. And then also he had split off another part of his brand, um, General Orea, to go up to Goliad. And uh, just the number of forces looked pretty bad for that. Davy Crockett was a man of legend. Mm. He was uh, Nimrod Wildfire in a very successful play where the actor recognized him as such, which sure. is a lot of fun. And I think the Billy Bob Thornton movie uh, would depict this pretty well when he's talking to the Bowie character and he said, you know what? Davy Crockett, um, he said David Crockett just assumed to jump over the wall because they did have some people that left early on before the final onslaught. But uh, Davy Crockett, everybody's watching him. Nice. So if he would have left, he would have left his, his legend and uh, all his fame that he had. Hmm. Okay. So um, I lost my train of thought. I was going to ask you a follow-up question on that. But the, the, the aspects of they had a chance to get out of the Alamo. Is that one of the myths? They had it. They all had a chance to get out. They could all escape. Gary, there's a couple of places where they had time. Certainly before Santa Ana arrived on February the 23rd, they could have left. They had different couriers that went out, and those couriers, some of them weren't, weren't able to come back. Either they couldn't get through the Mexican army or decided not to. And then you had some people that, that left. One group that left were the Tejanos. So Juan Seguin and some of his troops, who later, later uh, fought at the Battle of San Jacinto, were given amnesty for three days before the final onslaught by Santa Ana. Mm. And so there's about ten of them that left. And then you had different ones that took off that just jumped over the, the walls at night. And one of these was a legend uh, who's fascinating because his grave is very close to us. And his name was Lewis Rose. And they called him Moses because of how old he was. So he was about 50 years old, was a veteran of the Napoleonic Wars. So he knew Whoa. what it was like as, as far as when you get in a fixed battle like this. And he just didn't want to part for that. He later just said that he just wanted to live. 
So he goes to Grimes County, which is kind of due east of Austin, and goes in with a family whose name is the Zuber family and stays with them to recuperate for a couple of weeks. And the Zubers had a son. And in the Texas Almanac in 1873, their son wrote an article talking about Moses Rose. And at that point, he described that Rose had told him there was a line in the sand. Oh. So we always think that with our, our yeah. uh, movie, The Alamo, and, and Fess Parker and everything on Disney's uh, Davy Crockett, that there was a line in the sand. And that's the only mention of that by anyone that was there. Wow. So you did have some survivors, some of the women that were there, some of the wives of, uh, were, were in at the Alamo at that point. But no one um, described that except for this man who did it uh, 40 years later. So 40 it, years many, later. Um, uh, historians just don't believe that and, and uh, feel like this was made up. But it's a heck of a story. Um, Rose is buried between Logansport and Longstreet, and he has a huge tombstone. It's about six feet by three feet. Wow. So he ended up in this area. It ended up in, in our area. So was was the battle at Goliad before the Alamo or after the Alamo? Goliad? The Battle of Goliad was after the Alamo. And it happened at a place called Coletto Creek on um, March the 17th. What happened was Fannin was very slow to withdraw. So he's trying to bring his, his artillery in and wagons and everything, and he got caught out in the prairie. So the Mexican force under their best general, General Urea, called him at that point, took him back to Goliad at La Bahia, which the Texans had renamed uh, Fort Defiance. And they were executed on Palm Sunday. They broke them into four different groups. They thought they were going to Matamoros, and instead they were going to their death. Mm, mm, mm. So that's one of the, the, the battle cries that a lot of people don't understand, right? Even Absolutely. Today. You had more Remember people killed the Alamo? Than Goliath because it was almost 400 people. Now, the Mexicans did show some mercy. One of the officer's wife was known as the Angel of Goliad, and she helped some of the men to be able to escape that demise. Oh, wow. Interesting story there. So the other uh, the other aspect, and I, I think you need to emphasize a lot of our the defenders at the Alamo weren't just weren't just uh, Texans. There were others, right? Did you did you emphasize that to our listeners? I have not so far, but it's interesting in the role of Fort Jessup, that's right on on the Louisiana side of the border. There was a general there whose name was General Gaines, and he was very good friends with Andrew Jackson who was very good friends with Sam Houston. And the, tex- the Texas was offered, the Mexican government was offered twice a monetary settlement for Texas. Mm. So Andrew Jackson would love to have Texas, but it had to be done a, a perfect way because there was a lot of politics with it coming in, probably as a slave state with this. But Gaines, basically, commander said that if anybody happened to slip out at night, that they wouldn't be just, uh, counted as being absent without leave. Oh. So at San Jacinto, you had somewhere between 100 to 200 soldiers that had parts of a U.S. Uh, military uh, uniform on. And the next summer, Gaines sent some uh, soldiers in down to Nacogdoches to see if he could find out what happened to some of his soldiers who didn't come back. And they had been integrated into the Nacogdoches Society. So they um, enjoyed being on the Texas side and out of the Army. And stayed there. Yes. And probably probably stayed there. But my word, how nice is that when you've got a bunch of volunteers to then have uh, 100 or 200 people that are trained military to be with you? 
Okay, hold that thought. We'll be right back with more information. But now I work with my sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour here on News Radio 710 Keel, proudly presented by AARP Louisiana Neighbors, and country of Shreveport, your Dodge Chrysler Ram and Jeep dealer. Gary Kaligas will be right back with more Best of Times Radio Hour after this on 1017 FM and 710 Keel. Gary's back with more Best of Times Radio Hour on 1017 FM and 710 Keel. Welcome back to our show, the Best of Times Radio Hour, proudly presented by AARP Louisiana and Ebers, standing country of Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler Ram, and Jeep dealer. Joining me on my show today is a special guest, is Dr. Tom Presley, who is a remarkable local area physician, but also a person quite interested in history and a quite interesting researcher. So I thank you for joining us today, and I've asked Dr. Presley to talk about his recent presentation about the legends and myths of the Texas Revolution of the 1830s. So thank you for joining us today here. It's been quite fascinating. I've learned more and more things, even from your presentation that you gave, so it's, it's good to learn more and more. Well, Gary, thank you so much for, for having me today. Um, you know, one of the people I've been really amazed with is Travis, and you're caught in, in uh, the times of Longfellow and the romance of war. Uh, when you think about Gettysburg and the charge of the Light Brigade and everything, and one of the Victorian people that just really has always amazed me is, is Travis. And he was trying desperately, he had artillery pieces, he had a place to be able to get behind walls to be able to defend uh, the Texas interest, uh, but he needed more troops. And so he sent a letter to um, to the, the the government at Washington on the Brazos, and it, it goes: the people of Texas and all Americans in the world, I'm besieged by a thousand or more of the Mexicans under Santa Ana. I've sustained a continual bombardment and cannonade for 24 hours and have not lost a man. The enemy has demanded a surrender at discretion. Otherwise, the garrison are, are going to be put to the sword. If the fort is taken, I've answered the demand with a cannon shot, and our flag still waves proudly from the walls. I shall never surrender or retreat. Then I call on you in the name of liberty, of patriotism, and everything dear to the American character to come to our aid with all dispatch. The enemy is receiving reinforcements daily and will no doubt increase to three or 4,000 in four or five days. If this call is neglected, I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his honor and that of his country, victory or death. What a message. So how did he, how did you, first of all, when was it disseminated? When did he do this? What, this you know? was in early March, so it's about March the 1st is when the Texans were able to find this. And this was one of the reasons why Neil, who had left to help his family, who had been sick, was able to build the army that he could then give to Sam Houston. So he ended up with an army of 375 men, which was larger than the force at the Alamo. But they weren't organized enough to be able to take them into the Alamo itself. Okay. Uh, I was always curious. I remember hearing about this message. How did he disseminate it to the rest of the world? That's a, you he know, had that's couriers a, that went out. They had 12 different couriers from uh, the Alamo, and many did not come back, uh, such as John Smith was one of the ones that uh, Frankie Avalon was portrayed in the Alamo movie <laughs> yes. uh, with doing. But his friend James Bonham came uh, in and out a couple of times to, you know, he was desperate for men. So he was trying everything he could to see if he could get some reinforcements on this. Wow. How that was diligence and, and perseverance in getting that done. But and it's interesting what happened to him during the attack the Alamo, um, because he 
really commanded the north wall, which is the most vulnerable place. It was made of adobe. They had to reinforce it because it was just crumbling because of that. And they knew that that was when the big siege was going to happen since it was the most vulnerable part. And he went up on the wall uh, with a shotgun and was shot in the forehead. Mm-hmm. Um, they basically – things happened very early at, at dawn. It was dark. Um, you had all the smoke and, 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 and all from the battles, from the, the artillery fire. And so it was very hard to see things, and he was one of the first men that died. Mm. You know, Santa Ana could have waited a little bit longer, too, because his artillery pieces were coming up, and he had two 12-pounders. And if you look at San Antonio, there's a hotel that's called the Emily Morgan, which is a medical arts building, and behind that is where the Scottish Rite Cathedral is, and that's where his two 12-pounders were stationed but never used. Mm. And those are powerful Cannon. Yes, so those certainly could have annihilated that north wall if he had desired to do that. But I think he wanted to show what he felt were pirates and traitors and ingrates, um, what he was about, and to show an example for the Texans to be scared off and to run back in Louisiana as quick as they could. Okay, so let's let's conclude this for the rest of the story is uh, the Battle of San Jacinto, right? That's when the... Santa Ana basically divided his forces into several different parts, and he led the lead part into the, into trying sh- to try and catch the Texas government as well as Sam Houston. And unfortunately for him, he crossed Lynch's ferry and went into an island that was there that was blocked off around the San Jacinto River and different marshes around that area. And so when he did this, he really trapped himself. The Texans were already there under Sam Houston, but they were hidden in a forest. And that first day, they had a little artillery uh, fire between the two. The Texans had the twin sisters, led by who? Colonel Neal. Oh. And then the Mexicans had a very large artillery piece, but it was the only one they had, which they call the El Volcan. And so with this little skirmish on the first day, Neal was wounded. Mm. And the Mexican piece lost its wheel. So that night, Santa Ana had his forces uh, dug in. They had about 700 troops at that point and were expecting reinforcements from General Coast at any time. And Houston was on the other side with about six or 700 uh, troops. That next morning, Santa Ana thought there was going to be an attack because with Napoleonic tactics, your attack's always at dawn. Mm. But Houston didn't do that. Cost came in. His troops were exhausted. Most of them had been conscripts, so you've got people out of prisons and people off the streets were those soldiers, and they were exhausted. They came in, and between that group of, of his force and the soldiers who were exhausted from staying up all night digging trenches, uh, they took a little siesta. At that point, Santa Ana, I'm sorry, Sam Houston, in the mid-afternoon, led the attack. And so they moved the twin sisters about 200 yards away from Santa Ana's forces and fired them, had an opening was there. The battle itself was only about 18 minutes. But there was a slaughter that was afterwards with, remember, Goliad and no mercy given to the Texans or at the Alamo. There were over 600 Mexican troops that were slaughtered. Mm. And ironically, a general that wanted to protect the six or so prisoners at the Alamo 
from Santa Ana from from executing them, whose name was General Castellan, he um, just stood there with his arms folded and just waited to see what fate would be, and he was slaughtered. Mm. The other 700 Mexican troops were um, captured. And Santa Ana was uh, cap- was finally captured 24 hours later, and there was a big thunderstorm. So you had 3,000 Mexican troops in advance that within a day's march, three to 4,000 troops that could have come and taken over uh, Houston's forces. Wow. But they didn't do that because they were ordered to go back to Mexico. And they were worried. The troops were worried that they were going to be slaughtered. So they just would throw their supplies, their armaments, their cannonballs, the 12-pound cannonballs from the cannons at the Alamo that weren't used mm-hmm. on their way back through Jackson and Wharton County. And at, when they finally reached Mexico, there was a, a, a trial, a court-martial of the leading Mexican general, Dr., uh, General Filosola, by General Urea. And General Urea said that Filosola was a coward for leading them out of, out of Texas. And Filosola's response was, that you are the first one to come to Victoria and you were the first one to come to Matamoros. So if you were so bravo, uh, well, why didn't you, you why didn't you do something different? Well, and I'm sure he didn't he didn't like that as well. No, they were not able to court martial either generals, but the readings are fascinating, Gary, and I highly suggest that you read them. And they were not available till 1990. So mm. this was information I did not have as a kid uh, growing up. So so the the battle there made the turning point for the for Texas to gain its independence, correct? Yes. Um, Texas was an independent republic um, for, um, for 10 years, and it was finally accepted by the Mexican government after the War of Mexico. The Mexicans did not uh, agree to Santa Ana's plan because it wasn't approved by their government, and also obviously it was under duress. Hmm. So the the other good aspect was uh, there were some skirmishes before, and then the Alamo was really at the beginning. The Battle of the Alamo was at the beginning, not not toward the end, correct? Well, you know, it's interesting because during the Revolution, the Texans really only won two battles. They won the Siege of Bejar, and they won San Jacinto. And that so, was the impetus enough to get the... Well, it was pretty overwhelming when you catch the president. And so they um, and they captured him, and he signed a treaty, the Treaty of Velazquez, which was there. And and isn't there another rest of the story that he had a wooden leg? Is that a myth or Yes, true? he did, but they bronzed it, and they uh, <laughs> sent it down to Mexico is on display. Yes, I heard that. You know, it's that. amazing when you look at Bowie and Travis and Crockett, because all three of them came to Texas when Halley's Comet uh, passed overhead. Oh, I forgot about that one. And Shakespeare noted in the play Julius Caesar, when beggars die, there are no comets seen, and the heavens blaze forth the death of princes. Historian Jack Davis observed that there is no clear knowledge of where Crockett died. It could have been in the front of the chapel, the north wall, the redoubt, the west wall. He could have been captured and executed after the fight at the Long Barracks or chapel or following one of the three breakouts that occurred from the east wall or the palisaded fence then Mm. killed by the dragoons of General Joaquin Ramirez E. Sesmas. No one saw him fall and lived. That Crockett fell at the Alamo is all that's known. Crockett was the most famous man at the Alamo, yet his death, just like his birth, an event shrouded in complete obscurity. Mm. Or perhaps the opposite was the case. His death, like his life, was simply too big to contain within the normal bounds in the best heroic fashion of Nimrod Wildfire, Jeremiah Kentucky, Daniel Boone, and a whole generation of Americans searching for a new identity of their own. 
Davy Crockett, David of the River, Davy of the West, Loco David, had died everywhere because he was a host in himself. Besides, his end fitted the, le- the life of a legend. For when no one sees a legend die, then the legend lives. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you, Dr. Presley, for joining us today. It was quite remarkable. I learned a lot of new things, and I hope my listeners out there learned learned some information as well. Gary, you do a fabulous job on the best of times in your radio program, and it's an honor to be here. Well, thank you thank for you having again. me. Thank you again. Remember, everyone, don't forget to pick up your personal copy of The Best of Times in one of our 270 distribution locations. Also, be sure to pick up the 2023 Silver Pages. May God bless you and your family. God bless America. Have a great day and a great weekend. Thank you again for listening to our show. I'm Gary Kaligas, wishing you and yours the best of times both today and every day. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour here on 1017 FM and 710 Keel. Be sure to tune in next Saturday at 9 a.m. for more Best of Times. This is 1017 FM and 710 Keel.